Hello, and welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and today's guest is Lise Wilcox. Lise is the author of her second book called Alone, The Truth and Beauty of Belonging. She's also, according to her bio, a TEDx speaker, a NLP practitioner. She's a podcast host. She's a cancer survivor. She's a mother of three. She's a taco enthusiast. She's been featured on CNN, the Toronto Star, Entrepreneur. She's a master success coach. She works and mentors women about how to find truth and beauty in the relationships that they have with themselves and others. This this person, she's just a boss. She really is a, a great human. And in this conversation, we dive into the ideas of belonging self-love, self-acceptance, what to do when you're feeling undateable, not chosen, when you get frustrated that reality is not going to plan, when your expectations are not met, when you wanna just be sad and feel terrible, how do you get back on track, how do you live a life of values and meaning, what's the process for that? We talk about codependency, basically any any sort of generic self-help personal development term that you could throw out into the ether, I think that Lisa and I touched on it, which is exciting because there's a lot of good stuff in there. She shares some very personal anecdotes, particularly towards the end, about uh, the quirky sex lives of strangers. So you can wait to hear that. And I've included links in the show notes to her website, her books, and her podcast, which I was a guest on. And, uh, and that was fun. So thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. Make sure to leave a review, a five star, and spread the word to anybody that you think might enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here is Lise Wilcox. This episode is brought to you by Cured Nutrition. Cured is the leader in CBD supplementation with an entire line of products designed to take your everyday life to its ultimate potential. Their daily staples are formulated with an in-house clinical herbalist, which has taken the traditional CBD regimen to an entirely new level of optimization. If you're anything like me, you like waking up feeling good and living well, you've probably toyed around with the idea of finding healthy alternatives to jumpstart your morning. Personally, it's why I start my day with Cured Rise, which is their focus supplement, it's a powerhouse blend of functional mushrooms like lion's mane and cordyceps, broad spectrum CBD, and powerful adaptogens. It gives me clean, clear, and sustained energy without any of the caffeine jitters or a crash that I get with coffee. After I get going, Aura is next. It's another blend of functional mushrooms, CBD, and adaptogens, but it's got a twist. We all know how important it is to sustain our immunity nowadays, and this covers all of my bases. The vitamin D, prebiotics, crucial antioxidants are delivered straight to the gut, which is the foundation of our emotional and physical health, am I right? Second brain. It's where the majority of our serotonin production and immune function begin, or it keeps everything in check performing at its best, so I have one less thing to worry about, and I obviously cannot forget Zen. I use it every night. It is certainly why it has become Cure's number one selling relaxation and sleep product. You know the long night spent tossing and turning? Yeah, not with this stuff. It has ingredients like reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, magnesium, passion flower, broad spectrum CBD, so thankfully, Restlessness is something of the past. Cured Nutrition products are your answer for a daily dose of health. Visit curednutrition.com. That's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com. Be sure to use the coupon code LOVEBOMBS, and at the checkout, you will save 10% off your order. We're underway. Let's make a podcast. Leak, podcast. I was going to call you Leak. That's not your name. Let's not do a podcast. Leak. <laughs> off on a great foot. Uh, Lise Wilcox. That yeah. is your name. That is my name. It's good to see you again. It's been a minute since we've talked. Uh, likewise. Well, we, I mean, I just confessed something a little bit embarrassing, which was that I prepared for this podcast by reviewing your old book, 
and not your new book. <laughs> but nonetheless, you are an author who has two books now, is my yes. understanding. Yes. But for those listening that don't know much about you, how do you describe yourself? Like, who are you? I just, oh, the Socratic conversation right out the gate. Um, I describe myself as a conscious relationship coach and mentor and now best-selling author. I, my relationship coaching business and practice is not really built on dating and marriage counseling. It's really built on the foundation that the relationship you have with and to yourself is literally the foundation upon which you build every other relationship. So our relationship to work and to money, to life and to our friendships, to our family, our, our children, and absolutely without question into partnerships, they're all extensions of the relationship we have with ourselves. So to me, it makes the most sense to really come home, to know yourself, know who you are. And from there, watch how those other relationships in your life transform and align to be so well-suited to who you are as a person. That was so good. Thank you. Yeah. I'll also describe myself as a taco enthusiast, but I feel like we really went down like the, the professional rabbit hole first. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, you're a taco enthusiast. You are a mother. You are a cancer survivor. You are a TEDx speaker. You're a coach of high powered boss babes. How would you describe your ideal client? My clients are, they're, they are, they're the people who look like everything in their life is perfect because they just carry it so well. And they're the ones who are usually so busy supporting other people that they kind of forget that they also need that support. And I'm the person that ends up playing that role. A lot of, you know, therapy is wonderful. Coaching is wonderful. Some therapists and some coaches can only meet you kind of part way. And I find for a lot of really, really high functioning people who have, you know, had a lot of trauma in their life, who are carrying the ripple effects of that trauma and, you know, overperforming in other areas of their life. I'm the person who can meet them specifically where they are and kind of help them through the next phase. Mm. Okay. So you've opened the door a little bit in your introduction and I feel like just shoving my whole leg <laughs> through that doorway. How, <laughs> how do you learn to love yourself? Oh my God. Is that a fair softball question to just toss, toss it away? It is. It is. And the book that you reviewed for this podcast is like a 386 page self-love manifesto because that is, this, are we, this is a cursing podcast. Are we allowed to? Oh, please. Yes. What a fucking question. Like when I was, when I was going, when I was going through this process, you know, I had this really traumatic childhood as so many of us do. I navigated a really traumatic divorce that like brought on PTSD from childhood shit and all these other wounds that I was incurring during divorce, being a single parent that was met, you know, with breast cancer out of the blue a few years later. And I was really searching for that, that thing, that tool. I saw so many memes on Instagram. I saw so many like top 10 listicles and articles about like why you need to love yourself. And I was like, cool, 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 cool. How the fuck do you fucking love yourself? <laughs> and so, you know, I put together this compendium of everything I learned in my own healing um, experience that I then transformed into a coaching practice. And then I really almost like to the extent that you can codify that, codify that in the book. And it really is, it is such a process. It's such a practice. And it really starts with that intention of that intention and that awareness of like, holy shit, I don't like who I am. That's a really, really tough thing to admit. And I think a lot of people avoid that and they can't come to terms with that, that like, oh, this is the reason I'm afraid of being alone. Or this is the reason where I'm like constantly numbing shit out is that I don't fucking like who I am. And when you can have that conversation with yourself, I believe that opens the door to like, I'm ready to see myself and to behave and engage in the world in a totally different way. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, my top three tips. Right? Well, <laughs> like, yeah, it's so powerful though. It sounds like what you're describing there is to accept yeah. who you are, what you're feeling, where you're at, and just kind of, surrender to that acceptance rather than trying to perpetuate violence towards yourself or your feelings, your emotions, yes. trying to wage war on reality. 
Yeah. And I think that when we're talking about real deal self-love, what we're really talking about is unconditionally loving who you are. Unconditional love is phenomenally rare, but to truly love yourself without condition, effectively what we're talking about is acceptance. So that pathway to acceptance, as you and I both know, is, it's, it's pretty curvy. Like it's pretty bumpy. There are lots of twists and turns along the way. And I feel like the goal is peace. Like peace is the point, right? From my own path and my own experience and naturally the kind of people that I work with, it's overcoming codependency that leads you to that peace. But to overcome codependency and truly love who you are, you have to be aware that there are codependent or people-pleasing patterns at play so that you can start to look at why have I been in relationships like this? Like, what about my experience informed this? And what do I need to undo or relearn or, or heal in a way that I can make peace with and accept all that other stuff that allows me to be so comfortable with who I am as I am? And so when you work with clients or when you have these revelations yourself that are really uncomfortable to admit, are there any practices that you suggest or is it merely to just feel terrible for a bit? I think it's a little bit of both. I, you know, I, it's so funny that you asked me that specific question. Why? Because I've been single for a number of years. And after I wrote my newest book alone, The Truth and Beauty of Belonging, Mm. I really felt so ready to date again. And it's like, forget about finding the perfect person. I just really want to date and get back into the practice of dating. And I had two back-to-back dates that were not great. And like, I felt so deflated. And, you know, I I have all the skill set. I know how to talk myself through. I know how to feel better about it. And I was reaching out to a couple of girlfriends and I was like, I know, I know, I know I'm going to garner all the things I need to garner, but right now I actually just want to feel like shit. Like I just want to feel disappointed and rejected. I want to feel for a second that I'm not lovable. And then I want to come back to the place of, of walking myself through it. So sometimes I think you do have to feel it. I think, well, I think you always have to feel it, but sometimes I think you do have to acknowledge that you just want to feel kind of shitty. I think you do have to realize that we're constantly learning how to be. Right. And we live in a world that's always like, so what do you do? How do you do it? What are you going to do? And we're really learning on that, like that pathway to peace. I think we're learning how to be. And when you're learning how to be that, that to me is the practice of self-love. Yeah. You had this interesting line. I don't remember if it was in your book (laughs) or your website, but it said something about we're always developing. I think, was that the line that we talk about childhood development and like, Oh, zero to three and three to five. And then, you know, five to teens or whatever. But this idea that we are perpetually developing always. Doesn't that blow your mind? It's, it's very exciting slash overwhelming. Yes. So that's a real thing that, you know, in, in, child, in child psychology in child psychology and psychological development, it's like, oh, we stop at age 19 because now we have launched a fully formed human and away we go. Like the rest is history. I know somebody in my extended family who is in her eighties. She's the classiest woman. She's so lovely. And she made the decision to pack up living on her own into a retirement community or an assisted living facility. And within two weeks of living there, she had guys hounding her. She had friendship issues in the cafeteria where they go to eat. And I, I sat there and I was like, you've, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Like it doesn't end because there is no point of arrival. We're constantly in a state of development. And in the seventies, I forget what the author's name is, but somebody wrote a book called passages. And she really does. She breaks it down by like, here are the passages that we all go through. And this is what your twenties look like. And here's pretty much what you can predict or expect out of your 30s, 40s, 50s, all the way through. And I find that fascinating. So much of our experience, we think we're so alone and there's like nobody else who could possibly feel what we feel or experience what we experience. And it's like, oh my God, what if this is actually just a part of our own human development and we just think we're doing it in isolation? Yeah, I've often said to clients when I'm hearing their struggles or shares, like you're doing it right. Yeah. And like just that reframe I find is very helpful. Like, yes. oh, I feel like a complete imposter and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, you're doing it right. Yeah. This you're is right on track. <laughs> I'm, like, is, I'm like, you're right on track. Congratulations. Yeah. This is exactly the time when you're supposed to feel that thing. Yes. It's like, but I think 
from my own experience, when I, when I recognize that, and you alluded to that on your date, like, oh, this is the part where I'm supposed to feel, or when I get to feel rejected. Like, oh, this is the part when I start to judge myself. Like, yeah. I know, I know how this movie goes. Yeah, yeah. And then it doesn't become as intimidating or oppositional. It just becomes somewhat yeah. normal, normalized. It, it gets so meta, right? Because like our feelings are just feelings. They're, they're not even really real and they're simultaneously so real. But the only reason they feel one way or another is because we're judging them. So, you know, I, you know, and especially ugh, the date I just had, I, I did, I had like really high expectations. I thought it was going to be so great. And it was, it was disappointing and it was deflating and that sucks. Can you, um, can, I, you can I dig for details? Like, can you share yeah. like, a little bit of context for why, why it was disappointing? Yeah, we had been chatting. I, I really want to go slow when I'm dating because I am aware of my own codependent patterns from the past, right? I want to go slow and dating in an online capacity. That's really, really difficult to go slow. So very consciously, very intentionally, I've been going slow. We've been chatting. We escalated to the phone and then to video. And like the vibes were so good. And, you know, I was driving home from a cottage up north the other day. And for three hours, this fucking guy stayed on the phone with me. And we're talking about how we each handle conflict and what we do with our families for Christmas. I am here for this. Like, I'm like, I know. I know. I know. (laughs) I'm so here for it. And then, so, you know, we met in person, chemistry's good, feeling really good. And then all of a sudden, I don't, I don't even know what it was. Something just changed and it flatlined and it was like, holy shit, what a waste of time, (laughs) you know, like even trying to communicate. Here's how I'm feeling. I've noticed like, this is, it just feels really different. Can you talk about that? And to have that dismissed was so disappointing. And it, it feels like at the end of the day, it felt like people can, you can only know somebody as deeply as they're willing to be known. And you don't have any control over that, right? You still have to be let into their world. Mm. Yeah, it's so frustrating, right? Like my own experience, I would do these things whereby like I would plan our wedding and I would think about how I'm going to introduce them to my family. You do that too. (laughs) Where where are we going to go on holiday in the wintertime? And then it doesn't work out. And so it's not just about the relationship itself, but it's also this fictional future that I have created that also has to leave. And that feels more devastating in a sense. Well, and you know, where I comfort myself from this, like on the other side of, I just want to feel shitty. And I actually want to, and I would say indulge, like I want to indulge those feelings of, ah, they were right. You're not lovable. And I know that's not true. Like I've gone through all that. I know it's not true. Sometimes I just want to feel like I am unlovable. I did everything. You know what I mean? But I mean, on the other side of that, I was like, but oh my God, Lisa, like, look at the, look at the picture of a life. This man just painted for you. This is the guy who is like, I don't have kids, which is great for me because I do have kids and I don't want anymore. It's like, I love my nieces and nephews. Like I love them so much. I get up on the weekends and I make them pancakes. And I just put any kind of berries they want. You want blueberry? I'll make you blueberry. And then I braid their hair. And I was like, who is it? Like, I didn't even know I could have that. And I'm like, I want that. I'm ordering that now. Like, can I have that, please, in my life? <laughs> I, I think that that's a really important thing to highlight is that even when things don't go well or they don't go as planned, this experience still planted in you this idea of possibility. And like, I would call yes. It's possible. Totally. And I always call them expanders, right? That I had this expander experience of I've been so clear on what like Mr. Wright looks and feels like for me. And then I meet this guy out of total left field. He's more blue collar. He's not the executive like I thought he was quote unquote going to be. And he paints this beautiful picture. And suddenly my entire field of vision feels like it's opened up to all kinds of new possibilities which when we're talking about feelings to like bring it back to that place is like when we're able to like puncture holes in that ceiling of belief that we have, all we can see is possible when we, when we can use humor or we can use levity to, to look at things in a new curious way, things don't feel so dire. The only reason things feel heavy is that we're judging them in a way that allows them to feel heavy. Right. So I can be in that place of like, I just want to feel like shit for a minute. 
And it's ironically, it's not even judged as a bad thing. I would judge it as a good thing, but I just want to feel like crap for a second, right? Mm. Yeah, that you're comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Like that's a win, mm-hmm. right? And that's from a deep place of self-love and acceptance because I'm allow, I allow, give myself permission to mm. feel that full range of emotions that I have. Right. And so it's not, it's not specifically identifying with yourself as the feeling as much right. as it is identifying the feeling as separate and something that you can feel and then it will pass. Yeah. <clears throat> You're not that. Like right now I'm holding a book in my hands. I'm not the book. I'm just holding it and I can feel it and it's heavy and it's smooth and it's glossy. And then I set the book down and I pick up a glass of water and it's a brand new experience, right? It's cold. Mm. It's refreshing. None of that has anything to do with me. And still I'm having like an experiential relationship with that thing. Yes. It's that. <laughs> I'm just like, why, why am I getting so philosophical with this? This is what happens. You hang out with me long enough and we'll <laughs> stare at random things in the world and be like, that's so deep. Wow. <laughs> Even when you were doing that, my brain goes, well, it's kind of meta because she's holding her book and her oh. photo is on the cover. And so it's kind of like she is her book. Oh, so talk to me about that. What um, what was your experience like putting out this new book that is so personal and so tender? Yeah. And it's this chunk of your heart that's not really your heart, but it kind of is. And then it goes out in the world and people read it. Yes. So all of those things. And what I found so fascinating, like the first book, and I mean, you're an author, you know this. The, the first book that I wrote was so vulnerable and so intense, mostly because... I was learning to believe I could be a person who could write a book. And this book was full of wisdom that I like, that I was able to share with the world. The second book tapped so much more deeply into my own shadow and this like <laughs> long-standing fear that I would always be alone. And that's what it's about. It's exploring that, right? And so releasing that into the world was so tender, especially during the pandemic, because wow, increased feelings of isolation and loneliness. And I also, you know, I share that very romantic imagination. And so the storyteller in me and the person who's constantly like eating popcorn, watching the movie of my life, predicting what's going to happen next was like, man, what an incredible story to share. It's going to be when I release this book and I've already found Mr. Wonderful beside me. And so all of a sudden I released the book and the book did really well and hit a bestseller in several categories in the relationship sphere. And I was like, this is so good. This is so good. Oh my God, I'm still single. What just happened? And why does this hurt so much? And so that was really trippy because it kind of revealed to me of um, like an even deeper level of, oh, I feel like maybe I need to read the book that I need to read that I also needed to write. (laughs) Yeah, so you had this expectation or this covert contract with yourself and then reality didn't respect that agreement. Exactly. It was like, no, we're going to do it this way. Exactly. Right. I mean, I imagine when you were writing it, you didn't necessarily anticipate a global pandemic. Uh, during well, a launch. I wrote it during the pandemic. Oh, shit. So, so I take that this, back. I, I wrote this one really quickly. The first one also came out uh, in August 2020. So first oh. year of the pandemic. And this one kind of just spilled out of me because I had all of these analogies and lessons. Like analogies and lessons. So I just started writing them down. And like, voila, the book kind of wrote itself. And But it was really interesting writing it through the lens of the pandemic because I feel like people were so much more um, available to talk about loneliness, isolation, fear mm. of being alone versus enjoyment of solitude. Because that was like a superstorm of nobody had solitude. Everybody had isolation. What's the difference between being alone and feeling lonely, right? So what is what do you what do you think it is? Well I went through <laughs> a whole glossary. I went through a whole glossary of defining each of them because yeah. what I think is so interesting is that I really do think that on mass people have a fear of being alone. But what's so fascinating is that, you know, we spend thousands and thousands of dollars on numbing agents and relationship stuff. So we don't feel alone. And we also spend thousands and thousands of dollars on like silent retreats, you know, like places where we go to be alone. And so 
it's not alone that's bad. It's a judgment we we give to the, the notion of being alone. And does that create a feeling of loneliness or does it create a feeling of solitude? And how much of that is shaped by language or our thoughts and feelings and the judgments that we're giving to each and every one of those mm. things? It reminds me of that quote, which I will completely botch, but it was something about all of man's problems relate to his in, inability to sit alone in a quiet room, something wow. like this. You seen that one? I haven't seen that, but that's really lovely. It's it's that idea of, you know, we're very uncomfortable with ourselves and our feelings yeah. and our thoughts. And so we live lives to avoid yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Right. And so again, having this come out fresh off the heels of this self-love manifesto during the pandemic, when people were, even people who are so reluctant to have that conversation with themselves were like being forced into having that conversation with themselves. I kind of think it's a good time. Yeah. The way I described it is that the whole world was doing shadow work together totally. and like with virtually no preparation, <laughs> skill, skills, <laughs> abilities, plans. It's like, Oh, Hey, guess what? I know. And Got shadow work for you, shadow work for you, shadow work for you. <laughs> At the beginning, when like when COVID first hit, I was doing like lots of coping podcasts of like, oh my God, okay, if you need this, like here's how you do this. And just breaking down skill sets of like hopefully being helpful to people. But I remember saying, like, right now, everybody you encounter is wearing an invisible sign hanging around their necks that says, Hello, my name is Lise, and I'm deeply afraid of X, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's shit and shadow came to the surface without, as you said, like without any preparation or skill set for being able to really delve into that work. Yeah. I remember writing a post about that. I don't remember when, but the idea was, hey, treat people like they're grieving because they are. Like everybody's grieving something. Yeah. And so to me, it was just helpful to frame it that way because it inspires more compassion completely in, in myself, for myself, et cetera. What did you learn about yourself through the process of writing the second book? Oh, like what changed? Did anything? My awareness of how much deeper, how much more deeply spiritual I am as a person. I, I didn't realize as like in real time, I didn't realize what was happening was that my faith, my trust, my like deep internal practices had been so deeply cultivated over a period of time and writing the book, rereading it, you know, now several times, sometimes for editing and sometimes for comfort and wisdom. It's like, whoa, (laughs) like where did this woman come from? Who's just so, who's so trusting and who's so comfortable living in this very human 3d grounded reality while also having, you know, this access to this really ethereal place that we can't see. So it sounds like you've embraced part of yourself that you weren't fully in mm-hmm. love with before or that you weren't aware of. <clears throat> yeah, I think I was, I loved that and was aware of it, but I didn't realize, you know, what's a good example? It's like you go out swimming in the lake and you're kind of swimming and you're kind of swimming and you're just kind of swimming. And then you get back and you find out that where you were swimming was actually like a 50 foot drop. You're like, oh, I had no idea. Like I was just touching sand a second ago. and. Cool. You know what I mean? Hmm. And like you did it. And like with hindsight, you're reflecting and realizing, oh, that was significantly more spiritual or deeper than I imagined. And how lovely. Because to me, that that conveys such embodied wisdom. And I don't know, that felt Hmm. that felt really good. (laughs) How does that spiritual side relate to the idea of belonging or self-acceptance? It's a really great question. I feel like the spoiler alert of life and the spoiler <laughs> alert of, certainly of the book is that when you belong to yourself, the truth and beauty is that you, you were never really alone. Right. And when you can wrap your head around that, that fact that no matter where you go, no matter what you're doing from first breath to last, the one person who will always be with you is you. And so constantly coming back to that sometimes painful or startling reality and really being aware of, um, but I'm never alone. Even when I feel alone, I'm still here beside me. Um, and if I can find a way of, be, of that being enough, of that feeling enough, that it's enough to belong to myself, 
it's a really beautiful and empowered place to to live your life in. Hmm. And then what is your practice for cultivating that sense? Do you have specific things that you do or what's your toolkit look like? I, I think what that looks like, because I don't have, you know, like a daily practice. I don't, for a lot of people, I find daily routines are not actually effective. It sets a lot of people up to fail. Some people, a lot of dudes, especially it's, it's really, really valuable for a lot of people though. It becomes not helpful because if they don't follow the routine, because they really just can't do it that day, it like sets them back. But so for me, I think it starts with the awareness of what do I value? Like, what are my core values as a person? And what are the feelings that I wish to cultivate in this life? And then how do they relate together? And that's really the, the bulk of the work that I do with people getting crystal clarity on that and then building like this scaffolding or strategy outside of that. So for me, it's like when I know what my values are and I know how I want to feel, the practice becomes constantly being in compassionate communication with myself about how to honor both of those things. That's good. I like that. It also sounds sounds more complicated than perhaps the description belies. Yeah. In the sense of like, oh yeah, it sounds good. I'll just stick to my values. <laughs> And then life happens. To my life. <laughs> and then, right? Like, oh, thanks. Uh, and so, I mean, we could talk about so many different ideas related to this, but but how do you how do you get back on track when <clears throat> you notice you're off track or not aligned with your highest values? I'm I'm really really in tune with my feelings, like really high EQ, probably um, highly sensitive personality, like really really aware of them. And whereas I spent, you know, what, 35 years judging that and trying to repress that. Now mm. I feel like I can just be so aware that I have a lot of feelings and those feelings go from, you know, point A to point B. My objective is to not be on this roller coaster of highs and lows of feelings, but to be like more on the kitty coaster of, of feelings, right? Where it's like mm. you kind of shrink that threshold. And so if we have an awareness that our feelings are just feedback, and that feedback is constantly giving us really valuable insights as to what still needs to be healed. If we feel anxiety or if we feel like overwhelm or like, you know, you're really quick to anger or quick to temper or really quick to be in frustration, I'm now able to be like, oh, that's really interesting feedback. Let me just press pause on this moment, stretch it out and see what's out of whack. Maybe that mm-hmm. was a week, you know, I had, I usually, I've structured my business so that I usually don't have any clients when my kids are with me. Um, and then opposite when my kids are not here, I do all my work. So maybe it's a week that that isn't true. And I'm doing like my business and I'm, I'm trying to be present in my family. And if that becomes too much, then what the practice quote unquote looks like is not booking that again, or being just more compassionate. Like, yeah, you have a lot on your plate this week. That's why you're feeling frustrated and overwhelmed. Mm. I'm somebody who values freedom and pleasure and comfort and joy and ease, it's really difficult to honor those feelings and values if you're met with constant overwhelm, right? So then it's like, okay, what do I have to do to create the feeling I want to have that still aligns with what my values are? So it's like really front end heavy on self-awareness. And then the rest is kind of just implementing it as I go. Yeah, that was the phrase that came to mind when you were describing it. For me, it was like, oh, self-awareness. Like, yes. seems to be at the tip of the spear, so to speak. And, and that, interestingly, is like, I'm a big fan of walking the talk. And that is the work that I do with my clients. We go like super front and heavy. And then mm-hmm. the rest is like, well, now that we have all of this clarity about who you are as a person, what does that look like in this environment and in this trigger and in this experience over here, coming back to that core of what we now know about you as a person? Gotcha. Are there certain things that you see again and again in your clients that you just wish like you could cast a spell and change the world like permission to rest permission to ask for help and um and being able to identify codependency in so many like hidden and secret ways it tends to pop up in our everyday relationships like can you give an example of a secret hidden codependency oh yeah so i'm writing a book about this my third one is gonna go (laughs) (laughs) about how to end codependency because that i think yeah. is the the theme where it's at the helm 
of so much of this. And, you know, we think of codependency sometimes as like, oh, an empath and a narcissist get together and, you know, one can never give too much and one can never take too much. So they, they have this really codependent relationship. But so many people have these codependent friendships or family dynamics in which they're completely entrenched or enmeshed in each other's lives. In friendships, you see like, I don't know if you experience this in male friendships or ever have. And a lot of female friendships, it's like, well, I can't go and do this because I have to wait for my friend to go with me. Or, you know, I really want to go and do this thing together. But if she's in a bad mood, then we, we can't do that together. It's like, it becomes this really codependent thing. Or in dating, in relationships, constantly needing to give and perform and do and be present and top of mind, it kind of just sneaks up. And a lot of the time, you know, if you're somebody who's constantly giving and if you're the one who's there supporting your friends and you're the ones your family's always calling when they just need that boost, that is not necessarily a healthy relationship because it's not really reciprocal. It's one person kind of performing, draining out their own needs at, and, and meeting your needs at the, the expense of their own, which is celebrated because what a great person they are always there to support me. And it's such a toxic pattern because that person is never actually receiving the help or being aware that they even need help. They don't even know what their needs are, let alone how to ask safely for somebody to help meet them. And that, that to me is like this really insidious behavioral pattern I witness all the time professionally. That's, that's interesting. I don't think anybody's talked about that specifically on this podcast before. Perhaps we can dive into that for a moment. Yeah. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, it does actually. I I was on a call maybe a couple months ago, and and I was listening to somebody describe their life to me, and yeah. and it was very much that of you know I'm the one that people come to, and I love I love helping out, and also uh, I kind of feel resentful about that because I don't have time, or I had to cancel my dinner because da 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 person needed help talking about this. And, and so from my perspective, as, as the outsider, I saw a lack of boundaries. I saw codependency. I saw getting external validation to fill an internal void, et cetera. But from this person's perspective, they were, as you suggest, being a good friend, being a good partner, being a good son, daughter, et cetera, and not necessarily recognize, well, perhaps it's two ways, not necessarily recognizing the expenditure of time, energy, feelings, emotions, et cetera, or recognizing the expenditure and continuing to do it nonetheless out of a place of fear or, yes. or shame. I had, a, I had a client very recently who's, who's in that position. You know, she's in a partnership. They have a family together. She runs a business. It's a family business. It's a really, really, really successful family business. And she is the glue holding everything together. So she's really present for her daughter. She's really present for her partner. She's really present for her business. She's really present for her aging parents. And all of a sudden, like not all of a sudden, it's a, it's a slow burn. All of a sudden, quote unquote, like the building's on fire and it's like, everything's on fire. What do I do? And so one of the, the strategies that we're talking about is like, but you, you have to rest. It's not like it would be really nice if you could just rest. It's like, this is now a prescription because you are empty. You're heading right into adrenal fatigue. It's, it's going to become an illness. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Mm. And so it was like, you know, where's a happy place for you? Like, where do you feel really good? She was going to go up to her cottage. That became too stressful to be at the cottage because of all the family stuff that would be at the cottage. So it was like, all right, let's get you booked into a hotel room. Like one hotel room. If you can go two nights, great. If you can just go for one night, great. And she almost couldn't do it. And she was texting me for support in between because it was so overwhelming because she hasn't had her needs met in so long. She hasn't even been aware of what her needs are. And it became really, really, really frightening to think about being in a place where she wouldn't have to do anything for anyone else. And, you know, then I want to talk about what is fear and like, what's the subconscious response to that? So mm. when you see a bear chasing you down, you, your body kicks into fight, flight, freeze. It, it feels scary. It feels dangerous. 
subconsciously, she was getting that, that same feeling. It was so foreign. It was so outside her typical learned embodied behavior patterns that the idea of just being at a nice hotel for a night caused her an actual feeling of panic and fear and needing to run the hell away. If we like blow that up on a massive scale and understand that people are hurting, people are scared, people generally aren't that self-aware, and that's the place of fear that they're living from, so much more of the world makes sense, right? Like there's there's just such a there's such a need to be aware of what our own needs are. And instead, what we do is really celebrate people who are just constantly giving at the expense of their own self. Yeah. And and the idea that if they're present for others mm-hmm. too often, then they are never present with themselves. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a place like you described there where rest feels stressful. Yes. Where yeah. rest feels overwhelming or even traumatic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating that, that this happens. And that's, that's not even a judgment of that person, but like, but that's no. pretty normal in our society of like, yes. hey, um, don't check your work email on the weekend. And that can be very confronting and very. uncertain and scary. And, and yes, and that's <laughs> so common. It's so common. So common. Right? Yeah. I've got seven Instagram messages I got to get back to. And it's like, oh God. Like seven DMs, like not, nothing's going to happen if you don't answer those in the next two hours. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, and I speak for myself when I was saying that, like, I, I do that also. And I have these moments Same. where I'm like, what are you doing, man? Like, this is not an emergency. Yes. Like just chill. Yes. And, right. But I find it for myself, at least, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty good at, at resting. I have definitely some sloth DNA in my bones. Uh, and there's also times when I feel like I need to ease into that, like a gradual easing out or walking away from work, deadlines, obligations, et cetera. It's, it's hard for me to go cold Turkey. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty natural too. Yeah. But we know if we're talking about those kind of hidden or more, more covert patterns of codependency, that codependent relationship with work is an excellent example of that, you know? Mm-hmm people who are like, well, I couldn't sleep. So obviously I like, I got up and just started working. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You couldn't sleep. And the first thing you did was go to work. What if that isn't a normal pattern of behavior, right? What if that's a default or that's a void, or that's like, <gasps> I can't sleep. I got to go to work. Right. Or like, I don't know. I'm self-employed going away for a week is hard because I'm the only person who's doing the work. So when I come back, I do have to play catch up or I have to front end it before I go away. It is a lot, but you know, going away and not being able to relax or being away from your phone and not being able to concentrate on anything else other than getting back to the phone. That's not a healthy relationship. If we, if we frame it of like, you know, I'm dating and this guy's texting me and I got to text him right away. And as soon as I get a text from him, I have to like answer it right away. And if I haven't heard from him in a while, I got to, I got to touch base with him. And as soon as I wake up, I need to be in his presence, in his company. Very quickly, we're going to be like, Lise, that's a toxic relationship. It gets very codependent, very fast. Well, if you substitute that person with this is my work or this is my business, all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, this is a pretty toxic or unhealthy relationship I've actually cultivated to my work. And if that kind of codependency is present, what feedback does that offer that I still need to go a little bit deeper and maybe a little more shadowy within and figure out what needs to be healed there? That's really good. Thank you. I like that part of the podcast. I imagine some people right now are like, oh, damn. (laughs) Oh, damn. I I haven't thought of it like that before. And that's why it's so sneaky. What a hard worker, man. They're so committed. That guy's up at like 3 a.m. working. Mm-hmm. You send her an email. She'll be back to you within five minutes. We celebrate it without pausing to think of like, is that a good thing? <laughs> or is it maybe not? Yeah. When, when I worked for the Australian government, we had, I heard this quote of, uh, if you want it, if you want something done, ask the busiest person. Okay. Yes. Right. And I immediately was like, oh, that's funny. And then a part of me was like, wait, that's not healthy. That's, that's not great. But what, when you just said there, 
get a little bit more shadowy to yeah. explore. How do you mean? What's the? So I think, how do I phrase this? I think that often people look at or observe this, like heal, people call it the healing journey or this healing process. We think of it as like, well, I was in this broken place and I needed to come through it and fix it. And it's, and here's how it was before. Here's how it looks now. I think what we don't notice or we don't observe or even don't talk about is that there are so many overachievers and high performers in the world who are quote unquote doing everything right. And they're, they're not, you know, failing. They're not like, again, so broken that they can't perform. No, there's a void in there that's so empty. They just keep overperforming. And that, that, that metric of success that next goal, it's such a moving target. It keeps moving and moving and moving and it never stands still, which means they're constantly chasing, constantly looking and seeking um, external validation without ever pausing to identify what is the hole I'm trying to fill here, right? And that's really interesting to me to look at the opposite side. Somebody is so well accomplished and so great at overperforming that's often feedback that there's something inside that needs a little more tenderness and, and appreciation. That's pretty big shadowy work when we live in a capitalist society. And it's like, we kind of laud everybody who follows that model to get ahead. Right. It's almost like this idea that perfection is a red flag yeah. in a sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, hyperachievement while it can be so, it can be so fulfilling. It can also be a big red flag of like, oh, what else, like for what purpose? You know, like this kind of success for what purpose? Or this new metric, this new financial goal for what purpose? Mm. And we get clear on what the purpose is. Does that purpose align with our values? Yes, I picture myself doing this thing that I do occasionally when I'm, like, say I see a in this example of perfect, flawless CEO type that has the whole world together and is almost too put together and too in control. I, I like, I feel my body doing this thing where I kind of squint yes. and I go, and I go, Hmm, <laughs> I get a little curious, right? I'm like, what's really going on in there? I hope this is too much, but when I, when I think of that really well constructed and like that very picture perfect, facade or, or appearance immediately. I'm like, what kind of weird sex stuff are you into? That's not, that's not being talked about. Like, cause yeah. everybody needs an outlet. And I'm like, right. are you the big mask guy? Or like, yeah. well, what's happening here? What's your Google search history? <laughs> exactly. And it's like, and that's not even from a judgy place. It is like this really curious, like, so what is your outlet and how messed up does it, yeah. it get? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's that, right. It's, if you, imagine if you go into a perfect house and everything's spotless and everything's put together and then there's a door and they're like, no, don't go in there. It's like, I, I kind of get that squinty eyed curiosity of like, what's in there. Right. And I, and I feel like it's the same metaphorical idea for each of us. Like we, we have our outer identity. We have our safety and our comfort and our belonging. And then perhaps we each have a door it goes to a place that we don't necessarily want to enter or show people. Because you can only know somebody as deeply as they will allow you to be known. Yeah. Or allow themselves to be known. Yeah. And then I guess if you do go in that door often enough, you get to this place where it's like, this is also part of the house. And you totally. have a guest over and they like go in there and you're <laughs> like, that's a shit show down there, but you're welcome <laughs> to go check it out. Have it clean. But if everybody has one, then it's like, is it a shit show? I, I just yeah. it's so interesting to me because it's also become so predictable. Even that dark, shadowy stuff that we don't want anybody to know. Mm. But you have it, and I have it, and that guy down the street has it. So, like, mm. what's another example? Like the junk drawer in the kitchen. Like yes. when I when I was growing up, like we had a junk drawer, and it was we just like it. it's like where the stuff is. It's like <laughs> random paper clips and post notes. And, and as soon as you can't find something, it's like look in the junk drawer. Look like, in the junk drawer first. <laughs> Like, oh, there's the rusted screwdriver and some Halloween candy from two years ago. But then, <laughs> then I learned that, like, like what you just said is, that, oh, we had one of those, too. And then it's actually really common. Oh, totally it is. So we all have a junk drawer in our soul. That is, mm -hmm. oh, tweet that. <laughs> I, need to, I need to make a meme of that, don't I? I know, I know. I love it. 
love it. <laughs> yeah, we all have a junk drawer in our soul. And we call it the shadow. I mean, that's the shadow, right? It's like, there's a junk drawer. It's all kinds of old, weird stuff in there. Please, where can people find you on the internet? What else do you have to depart with words of wisdom? Like, I know you got two books and a TED talk and a coaching practice. And uh, do you have a podcast? Yeah, you do have a podcast. Of course, I was fucking on your podcast. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> you have a podcast. I'm losing track of your uh, your credentials and your accomplishments. But is there anything that I didn't highlight there? No, I think you got it all. I'm, all of that is contained at newswilcox.com. L-E-I-S-S-E-W-I-L-C-O-X.com. I'm on Instagram with the same handle. Um, I was going to make a crack at like, you could find me on Tinder, but I'm not going to go there because it's it's not actually funny. (laughs) It's just like, that's such a self-protection thing. (laughs) So yeah, leasebookbox.com. That's where I'll be. And and you're active on Tinder. So maybe somebody listens to this and it's like, I know that woman. Yes. Yes. Cool. Well, you're fun. And (laughs) I really, I really do. I appreciate your energy and and I also appreciate your courage, like the work that you're doing and the books that you're writing, they're, they're powerful and they're uh, profound. And I imagine they're very difficult to write. And I just want to acknowledge you for that. It's inspiring to me as somebody that does create and play in this space. I really appreciate it. Good on you. Yeah. All right. We did a podcast. High five. So that is Lise Wilcox, author of two books. Uh, I have read them. I am actually, my name is in the second one as a reviewer. I I offered a a blurb of support and encouragement. So that's fun. And uh, Lisa's great. She's got the podcast, which I was on, which you can uh, check out. Uh, She's got a couple books. I've included links to that stuff in the show notes, as well as her Instagram account. If you have questions for her, get in touch, reach out. She's a good one. And you're a good one. Thank you for being here. Thanks for your support. Thanks for the five-star reviews. Thanks for writing a review. It does make such a big difference. It helps, it helps, it helps. And I appreciate you. And I will talk to you soon.